0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW.
1: Tomorrow they're gonna go through this locker and send everything here to Kowalski's wife. Here, put this on. You hear a lot about Kowalski in the next few days. How he's a bad cop, a bully. Punched a priest one time. Kidding me? They choked out so many suspects to called them the sleep train. Is it true? He closed cases, he got things done. The rest is just whatever.
0: What? I should be primary on Kowalski. You haven't even been to the crime scene. I am the most decorated officer here. Off. Plus I know how to talk to the press. Right, now I get it. You know, it's a political world. you read the post headlines this morning? Nope.
2: Okay, crooked cop killed. You need Eddie Alvarez on this. Eddie Alvarez is connected. Eddie Alvarez knows how to tame the bear. Good
3: morning, London. It's Thursday, August 21st, 2014. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. No, it's not right wing. It's just right color and color it black and white. Under the everything
0: will
3: be alright. And welcome to our show today, where as always, 519 661 3600 is a number you can call if you want to join in on the conversation or write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Today on the show we've got another mixed bag of, uh, of issues and topics to discuss. Towards the end of the show, we want to talk about Adam Smith's invisible Hanauer. (laughs) Talking about Nick Hanauer's muddled minimum middle thinking on minimum wages, which has been creating a storm lately south of the border, hasn't it, Robert?
2: It certainly has, yeah.
3: And uh, Robert and I also plan to continue a conversation. We kind of started last week on the show, when we briefly got into whether or not animals can be happy, but we ran out of time, so we'll be taking that conversation to the next stage a little later on today. But first... Crooked cops. Who polices the police? Police turn criminal. How do we handle
2: that? That's something you were taking a look at, eh, Robert? Well, yeah. I don't know if you've been following the Ferguson, Missouri riots and that, but these recent riots and looting, due to the shooting of an unarmed, unarmed black man by a police officer, is only the most recent incident to put into question the actions of American police officers. There's a fear that police officers and police forces are becoming too militarized. Like soldiers in a war zone, they're, they're wearing full-body armor and camouflage clothing, riding down streets in armored vehicles. They're being equipped with high-powered weapons, sonic riot control devices, flash grenades, and drones. On social media, there's a daily barrage of images and videos of police officers apparently abusing their authority by indiscriminately arresting people, as at the G20 protests, beating up people, tasering them, and even shooting the unarmed as in Ferguson, here are some things to consider when confronted with these incidents. There's approximately 900,000 sworn law enforcement officers in the United States alone. Now, these are officers who have powers of arrest and carry weapons. Consider for a moment that of these almost one million people, there will always be a percentage, as there is in any sampling of people who are corrupt, who are violent, and who are mentally unstable. Given such a large group of incidents and a large group of people, such incidents of corruption and abuse of authority will occur. And with the number of video cameras available, these incidents are going to be witnessed by more and more people. It's when we're bombarded by these images on a daily basis that we might think that all police officers are corrupt and violent. And I've seen so many social media people uh, on Facebook, Twitter, etc., posting posts suggesting just that. And they're not just from the left, they're from the right as well. They're all over the spectrum, especially libertarians. They love to hate the police. Policing can be a nasty job involving violence and often lethal force. It's not a pretty sight, but it's often necessary to apprehend suspects or to keep the peace. People forget this, and they often react emotionally to a display of police violence, even justifiable violence, negatively. As far as the militarization of the police goes, the police should have at least as much firepower as the criminals have, and the police should have as much protection as is reasonable, i.e., You don't need a SWAT team in armored APCs or armored personnel carriers making routine arrests, but you certainly may need a SWAT team in armored personnel carriers breaking up mass riots and protests. It depends on the situation. Corruption in police forces and dealing with corrupt and criminal police officers should be a process that is transparent, quick, and just. It's not often the case that prosecuting rogue police officers is seen to be either transparent, quick, or just. This, however, is not a reason for people to start looting shops and torching cars as they do in Ferguson, Missouri. It's a reason to complain to the Solicitor General, or the police chiefs, or the police service boards, or their counterparts in the United States, because those are more or less Canadian entities. Now, Darren Wilson, the Ferguson police officer who shot uh, Michael Brown is to death, is now facing the decision of a grand jury. It'll be up to that jury whether or not there is evidence that Mr. Wilson should face criminal charges for his actions on August 9th. And this is as it should be. I would suggest that any time a police officer who has shot someone, that the judicial system involve itself, whether it is an investigation by a grand jury, as in the United States, or by the Solicitor General or Attorney General's office here in Canada. Such an investigation should be automatic, objective, and it should not be left to the local police to investigate themselves solely. Local police service boards, that's the people who hire police chiefs, seem ineffective in dealing with investigating complaints against the very police they hired. So their investigation should not be the only one to decide whether or not the actions of a police officer merit criminal investigation. They almost have a vested interest to show that, hey, we made a right decision in hiring this police chief, so we're not going to press charges. But aside from the automatic involvement of a judicial body, I believe it's in the best interests of the public and the police, for all police officers to wear body cameras during their interactions with the public. Now, a recent study by the um, police department in Rialto, California, as reported in the New York Times in April of 2013, found a startling reduction in the number of complaints by citizens and the use of force by police when those police officers wore cameras. Quoting from the New York Times, half of Rialto's uniformed police officers on each week's schedule have been randomly assigned the cameras, also made by Taser International. Whenever officers wear the cameras, they are expected to activate them when they leave the patrol car to speak with a civilian. A convenient feature of the camera is its pre-event video buffer, which continuously records and holds the most recent 30 seconds of video when the camera is off. In this way, the initial activity that prompts the officer to turn on the camera is more likely to be captured automatically, too. The Rialto study began in February of 2012 and will run until this July. That's 2013. The results from the first 12 months are striking. Reading from the uh, New York Times again. Even with only half of the 54 uniformed patrol officers wearing cameras at any given time, the department overall had an 88% decline in the number of complaints filed against officers, compared with the 12 months before the study to three from 24. Rialto's police officers also use force nearly 60% less often, in 25 instances compared with 61. When force was used, it was twice as likely to have been applied by the officers who weren't wearing cameras during that shift, the study found. And lest skeptics think that the officers with cameras are selective about which encounters they record, Mr. Farrar, the uh, police chief, noted that those officers who apply force while wearing a camera have always captured the incident on video so that 's uh, that was a quote from the New York Times of uh, April two thousand and thirteen technology such as body cameras and dashboard cameras are obviously quite effective in encouraging civility in any police slash public encounter and it 's unfortunate that uh, the dash cams and body cams which had been on order for the Ferguson, Missouri Police Department had not arrived in time to record the incident involving Michael Brown and which led to his th- shooting death. Had there uh, been a dash cam, had there been a body camera, I suspect that the events of that day would have played out a little differently, and certainly the reaction by the citizens of Ferguson, Missouri so, so what would be different as well. So what you're saying is, when,
3: when you a- ask the question, who watches the watchers, let's say, or who polices the police, it's themselves. Through
2: technology. Uh, technology. No, other well, technology is just a tool, isn't it? Yeah. It's uh, the interpretation but of the video. It seems mean, to have an effect. It's interesting. There was a, a, a cell phone video moments after the shooting, and there, uh, the cell phone video was not uh, important in and of itself because all you're seeing is the dead body of mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Brown on the street. But what is important is that it recorded the conversations of these people who witnessed it, talking about it, Seconds after. Right. So then you have this other recording device, the audio, getting people's more or less their testimony, um, minutes after it happened, which is a lot better than uh, all the hearsay that starts to develop uh and, and people's memories failing. So technology I think plays a crucial part in making sure that the police are held account and the public mm-hmm. are held account as well. And I and I encourage all police officers and police forces to uh to get those, that, that technology.
3: Excellent. That it? That's it. Okay, let's move on.
1: Right, now what we're doing here is we're staking out this pub because we think, right, you, you, you see that pub? Well, we know there are some organized criminals in there having a meeting. That's generally where they have the meetings, in a pub or a bar, not so much offices. Almost never. Yeah. And I'm sorry to say that we think, we think that one of the criminals in there is a policeman. If you can understand such a thing. You see, he's what's known as a bent copper. Now, what this means is not that he's a homosexual, uh, although he is, but don't worry about that. What it means is that he's not a policeman. He is a policeman. Well, yeah, he is a policeman, but... But what it means is that he is... Corrupt? Gay. Corrupt, yeah, he's corrupt. So, yeah, I was right the first time, he's not a policeman. Yes, he is. Well, yeah, Kevin, yes, he is a policeman, but he's also a criminal. Now, you know, the two just don't... Tessellate. No. Go, yeah, they don't go. It's like chalk and... Cheese. Lager. Cheese. Chalk and cheese. So, alright, he's not a policeman, but he sort of is. He's sort of half and half, so we'll probably let him off, won't we? Yeah. Yeah. You feel like trying
0: something new for dinner. Maybe Indian Tex-Mex?
3: You ever wonder how humans would be different if they evolved from lizards instead of mammals?
0: (laughs) Okay, let's talk about that. (laughs) As you know, lizards, cold-blooded animals, lack the ability
3: to sense temperature, but they do move more sluggishly when it's cold. So lizard weathermen would say things like, bring a sweater, it's slow outside.
0: (laughs) I love my mind. We all do. Now, how about dinner?
3: Oh, I would assume we'd enjoy insects or smaller lizards. We could also pull each other's tails off and grill them. They'll just grow back. Oh, my life-size cardboard Mr. Spock is here. I know he wouldn't care for an outburst of human emotion, but oh, goody, oh, goody, oh, goody. Commander Spock.
2: Requesting permission to be unfolded. Excuse me.
3: Permission granted, Commander. (laughs) Which is why the more intelligent the monkey, the more
0: feces they fling.
2: (laughs) So, a little bit on the lighter side for this segment. On last week's show, Bob and I had a disagreement on whether or not a lesser animal than a man could experience happiness. And I suggested that an animal could be happy. And Bob suggested that based on Ayn Rand's definition of happiness, that it could not. And that definition being the attainment of one's values. Here's what Rand had to say about happiness in Atlas Shrugged, quote, Mm -hmm. "'Happiness is not to be achieved at at the uh, command of emotional whims. Happiness is not the satisfaction of whatever irrational wishes you might blindly attempt to indulge. Happiness is a state of non-contradictory joy.' a joy without penalty or guilt, a joy that does not clash with any of your values and does not work for your own destruction. Not the joy of escaping from your mind, but of using your mind's fullest power. Not the joy of faking reality, but of achieving values that are real. Not the joy of a drunkard, but of a producer. Happiness is possible only to a rational man. The man who desires nothing but rational goals, seeks nothing but rational values, and finds his joy in nothing but rational actions, unquote. So to put it into context, that quote from Atlas Shrugged, I believe that when Rand is saying that happiness is possible only to a rational man, she's comparing that to an irrational man. She's not necessarily excluding animals, although animals cannot reason as we do. A rational man is one who's acting according to his nature. He's off, he, he is, after all, the rational animal. That's what we are. That's our nature. But what of lesser intelligent animals like gorillas or dogs who act according to their nature to achieve rudimentary values such as food, play, sex, comfort, companionship? Anyone who's owned a dog cannot mistake its happiness when it's at play. The danger here, it's not simply, you know, stimulus response. It's not simply Skinner responses. The danger here, though, is anthropomorphizing ascribing to a lesser animal human attributes and motives. But for the same reason that I can infer another human's intentions and feelings, I can infer a lesser animal's intentions and feelings. I can tell when another human is happy or sad because we share the same genetic makeup. We act the same way to similar stimuli in general. I can't get into another person's head, but I can make intelligent inferences based on a history of observation of others. Now a gorilla's brain is not too dissimilar from that of a man's we're both apes we're genetically very close we often behave the same way to similar stimuli i can therefore infer anger in a gorilla when it reacts in a certain way to a threat or happiness when it gives something uh, when it, sorry when it is given something it obviously values emotions in many al- animals i would go so far to say are self-evident to us. If you mistreat a dog by kicking it, for example, and it bares its teeth and raises its hackles, then I'm pretty, pretty safe in inferring that it's not happy. If, on the other hand, I come across a border collie playing with a ball and I pick up the ball and throw it, and the dog wags its tail and runs after the ball and brings it back for you to throw again, I, I think I'm pretty safe to say that the dog is happy. It values play, and it's achieving that value by interacting with you. Now, on the recent tragic death of Robin Williams, I I happened across a video of him interacting with a gorilla named Coco. Now, Coco can understand spoken English and can communicate using over a thousand signs in American Sign Language. And you only have to watch the video of Coco to know that this is true. It's communicating. It understands words, and it can communicate with American Sign Language. Now, when Coco was told of Robin Williams' death, this is how her handlers reported her reactions to the unhappy news. Quote, After news broke of the 63-year-old Hollywood actor's death, Coco picked up on the somber mood at the center. After the first call, Coco came to Dr. Penny Patterson with an inquiring look on her face, the foundation wrote. Dr. Patterson explained that we have lost a dear friend, Robin Williams. Coco was quiet and looked very thoughtful. By the end of the day, after more calls came in, Coco bowed her head and her lip quivered. Handlers said she was close to tears. She became extremely sad. Now, as somebody who has studied animal behavior is actually my concentration of study while going from a bachelor of science, I realize the danger of imparting to lesser animals the attributes of man. But I believe that the closer genetically and behaviorally other animals are to a human being, for example, gorillas or other higher-order mammals, the more accurate and valid is our interpretation of their behavior using human terms. It's my conclusion that many animals, like chimpanzees and dogs, experience emotions. Cats, however... Are a complete mystery. (laughs) Um, I think you're
3: confusing emotions with happiness, which I think is more of a rational definition. I think the definition has to be around the word happiness. A dog may feel great joy at playing right now, but most human beings' happiness is predicated on how they see, feel about the future. Even oh, yes, not,
2: I, I don't disagree with you, know, you there. The defining characteristic of a human being over another animal is the ability to plan. Exactly. For example, I'm finally happy when I got my Bachelor of Science after, well, X number of years. <laughs> well, this is, uh, but a dog uh, is only happy for the range of the
3: moment. Right. You so, give it so, food, it's so, happy. So, you play with so it, it's happy. In a way, you could almost say that animals are perpetually in bliss and perpetually happy because no, no, in no. the sense of, because they might be feeling great today but not know that they're going to die tomorrow or the next day that a oh, human being might be aware of, right? There's a distinction I would agree with you on. And, and, you know, I was looking at an interesting thing in Reader's Digest, the road to bliss. You know, happiness is working towards a goal, not just achieving it because that. that triggers positive things. Achievements will be sweeter if you're living according to your values. Gandhi said happiness is when what you think, what you say, and what you do are in harmony. And I thought the funniest one was Armistead Maupin who said, nobody's happy. What's happy? Happiness is over when the lights come on, <laughs> when you figure out <laughs> how bad things are, right? But uh, I hear what you're saying. I think, I think when you get to a point where animals... Um, can make those valuations, they cease being animals and they become something more rational. And then we have to redefine them as some something else. Maybe not all the species of animals on this planet are properly identified by us uh, in terms of what I their nature I wouldn't use is. the
2: word rational when it comes to an animal, an, a lesser animal. Right, I agree. But um, I do think that uh, their emotions are self-evident.
3: Okay, Robert. Interesting. Going to move on to another subject right now. We've got a Got a uh, interesting feedback from one of our listeners, Robert who, or um, Robbie, who listened to and watched online an interesting TED talk. You know those talks where famous people speak about something that concerns them, and this was about a fellow named Nick Hanauer, who we will hear from quite at uh, at length over the balance of the show, and he was surprised that this guy would be recommending setting minimum wages, and he says he doesn't think the government should do that. He thinks it's counterproductive, and uh, He said, you know, our economy got along nicely for 400 years without minimum wages. Yet this plutocrat says paying everyone $15 per hour is making Seattle a boomtown. Am I missing something here? Well, I don't think he is. And so, um, after all, who am I to disagree with a man who's a billionaire several times over? But for the record, I will tell our listeners in advance... ...that I strongly disagree with almost every statement made by Nick Hanauer in his August 12th, very compelling and persuasive TED Talk. I even disagree with some of the negative things he said about himself. So, over the balance of our show today, we want to share both his own view with you in his own words and why... I so strongly disagree with it. I think you do too, Robert. You said you were actually embarrassed listening to I him. couldn't
2: watch it all, Bob. Because really? I was so embarrassed. It was like watching an, an episode of The Office with well. Ricky Gervais.
3: <laughs> but anyways, I think this is the kind of thinking that actually has to be warned against and which is the very root of what Hanauer himself fears. We'll make that all clear from you, for you when we return on the other side of this.
0: I, you probably don't know me, but I am one of those .01 percenters that you hear about, and read about, and I am, by any reasonable definition, a plutocrat. And tonight, what I would like to do is speak directly to other plutocrats, to my people, because it feels like it's time for us all to have a chat. Like most plutocrats, I too am a proud and unapologetic capitalist. I have founded, co-founded, or funded over 30 companies across a range of industries. I was the first non-family investor in Amazon.com. I co-founded a company called The Quantive, that we sold to Microsoft for $6.4 billion. My friends and I, we own a bank. I tell you this, (laughs) unbelievable, right? I tell you this to show that my life is like most plutocrats. I have a broad, perspective on capitalism and business and I've been rewarded obscenely for that with a life that most of y'all can't even imagine multiple homes a yacht my own plane etc 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 but let's be honest i am not the smartest person you've ever met i am certainly not the hardest working i was a mediocre student i'm not technical at all i can't write a word of code Truly, my success is the consequence of spectacular luck, of birth, of circumstance, and of timing. But I am actually pretty good at a couple of things. One, I have an unusually high tolerance for risk. And the other is, I have a good sense, a good intuition about what will happen in the future. And I think that that intuition about the future is the essence of good entrepreneurship. So what do I see in our future today, you ask? I see pitchforks, as in angry mobs with pitchforks. Because people like us plutocrats, because while people like us plutocrats are living beyond the dreams of avarice, the other 99% of our fellow citizens are falling farther and farther behind. In 1980, the top 1% of Americans shared about 8% of national wealth, while the bottom 50% of Americans shared 18%. 30 years later today, the top 1% shares over 20% of national wealth, while the bottom 50% of Americans share 12 or 13. If the trend continues, the top 1% will share over 30% of national wealth in another 30 years while the bottom 50% of Americans will share just six. You see, the problem isn't that we have some inequality. Some inequality is necessary for a high-functioning capitalist democracy. The problem is that inequality is at at historic highs today, and it's getting worse every day. And if wealth, power, and income continue to concentrate at the very tippy-top our society will change from a capitalist democracy to a neo feudalist rentier society like 18th century France. That was, you know, France before the revolution and the mobs with the pitchforks. So I have a message for my fellow plutocrats and zillionaires and for anyone who lives in a gated bubble world wake up. Wake up. It cannot last. Because if we do not do something to fix the glaring economic inequities in our society, the pitchforks will come for us. For no free and open society can long sustain this kind of rising economic inequality. It has never happened. There are no examples. You show me a highly unequal society, and I will show you a police state or an uprising. The pitchforks will come for us if we do not address this. It's not a matter of if. It's when. And it will be terrible when they come for everyone, but particularly for people like us plutocrats. We plutocrats need to get this trickle-down economics thing behind us, this idea that the better we do, the better everyone else will do. It's not true. How could it be? I earn a 1,000 times the median wage. But I do not buy a 1,000 times as much stuff, do I? I actually bought two pairs of these pants, what my partner Mike calls my manager pants. I could have I bought 2,000 pairs, but what would I do with them? <laughs> how many haircuts can I get? How often can I go out to dinner? No matter how wealthy a few plutocrats get, we can never drive a great national economy. Only a thriving middle class can do that. I know I'm a sound like some liberal do-gooder. I'm not. I'm not making a moral argument that economic inequality is wrong. What I'm I'm arguing is that rising economic inequality is stupid and ultimately self-defeating. Rising inequality doesn't just increase our risks from pitchforks, but it's also terrible for business too. So the model for us rich guys should be Henry Ford. When Ford famously introduced the $5 day, which was twice the prevailing wage at the time, he didn't just increase the productivity of his factories, he converted exploited auto workers who were poor into a thriving middle class who could now afford to buy the products that they made. Ford intuited what we now know is true, that an economy is best understood as an ecosystem and characterized by the same kinds of feedback loops you find in a natural ecosystem, a feedback loop between customers and businesses. Raising wages increases demand, which increases hiring, which in turn increases wages and demand and profits. And that virtuous cycle of increasing prosperity is precisely what is missing from today's uh, uh, economic recovery. And this is why we need to put behind us the trickle-down policies that so dominate both political parties and embrace something I call middle-out economics. Middle-out economics rejects the neoclassical economic idea that economies are efficient, linear, mechanistic, that they tend towards equilibrium and fairness, and instead embraces the 21st century idea that economies are complex, adaptive, ecosystemic, that they tend away from equilibrium and toward inequality, that they're not efficient at all, but are effective if well-managed. This 21st century perspective allows you to clearly see that capitalism does not work by effectively allocating existing resources. It works by effectively creating new solutions to human problems. The genius of capitalism is that it is an evolutionary solution-finding system. It rewards people for solving other people's problems. The difference between a poor society and a rich society obviously is the degree to which that society has generated solutions in the form of products for its citizens. The sum of the solutions that we have in our society really is our prosperity and this explains why companies like Google and Amazon and Microsoft and Apple and the entrepreneurs who created those companies have contributed so much to our nation's prosperity.
3: That was Nick Hanauer, self-proclaimed plutocrat and speaking to other plutocrats. He is a plutocrat, not a capitalist. He is rich. He openly admits that his fortunes are what he says is a direct consequence of luck, and even there, I'm not sure I fully agree with that. He said he wasn't the smartest or hardest working person you ever met, and he was a mediocre student, has no technical skills. Birth, circumstance, and timing are his secret to to wealth. Well, I, I don't think luck alone won't do it. The idea, you know, when somebody says they're lucky or lucky I was born here and not somewhere else, I get, I understand what's meant by that, but the idea that he could have been born elsewhere is one of those metaphysical impossibilities, right? Mm -hmm. It assumes that his consciousness existed before he was born and could just as easily have been attached to the body of a fetus that somehow popped out of its mother's womb in the middle of the Ukraine or Soviet Union or something like that, right? The United States similarly was not a consequence of luck but of true statesmen in the early founding of the nation who were essentially basing their founding principles on the principles of freedom, which are increasingly being abandoned by successive American governments. When we say that we're lucky, what we really are saying, if you look at it critically with the use of the word luck, is one, that we admit there are a myriad of events and intentions in the world around us over which we have no direct control. Two, that none of those events negatively affected our own plans and intentions and may even have affected them positively. And three, that we made the right decisions, with or without foreknowledge or, or forethought. And in that sense, everyone is lucky to the extent that they regard themselves as successful. Now, Hanauer says he's good at a couple of things. He has a high tolerance for risk, has a good intuition about the future, and that this intuition is the essence of good entrepreneurship, he says. I really don't know how having a high tolerance for risk translates into being good at something, but it does serve a critical function that we'll discuss a bit later. As to intuition, I have to assume that he's really speaking of an informed sense of timing. He sounds like a person who may have a lot of connections and is very good at at putting differing people and and interests together. He sees the future as one in which the plutocrats will eventually be attacked by the pitchforks of angry mobs, saying that 99% of people are falling farther and farther behind the plutocrats. Well, that only makes sense. The very rich will always zoom above the rest. That's that, that, you know, <laughs> that great gap between the very rich and, the, and most of us is not a thing to be feared in and of itself. And uh, he says, eventually, the top will, top one percent will share thirty percent of the wealth, while the bottom fifty percent will share only six percent. Calling inequality at a historic high and getting worse, and he thinks this is going to turn us into an eighteenth century France. Show me a highly unequal society, and I'll show you a police state or an uprising. He says. So, Hanauer is saying that countries where the inequality is greatest are totalitarian countries. Well, of course. But the very inequality he's talking about is caused by the totalitarian nature of those countries. They didn't become totalitarian because they started off with economic inequality. He's advocating a totalitarian measure for the good of the majority in order to prevent totalitarianism. In other words, let's have minimum wages so we can prevent minimum wages being imposed on us. I don't get it. It's a complete train wreck of contradictions and associative thinking. But you have to give him credit for admitting he's not particularly bright or knowledgeable on this issue. And take him at his word on that. Mm -hmm. He's not. (laughs) He says, like most plutocrats, I'm a proud and unapologetic capitalist. Well, I disagree entirely. Most plutocrats are socialist, communist, or fascist in their economic and political thinking. They may be good at business, but they continually confuse business with capitalism, when in fact business exists in all countries, from the most communistic to the most capitalistic. And he says we need to get, get this trickle-down economics behind us. It's not true. You can't buy, he can't buy 2,000 pair of pants or increase his number of haircuts. And he says we can never drive an economy. Only the middle class can do that. Well, I suppose you could say the middle class is the economy. I don't know if it drives itself, but you know, I'm thinking, well, duh. So we're, so, so. what does he do with the rest of his money that he's not spending exactly. as a consumer,
2: right? It's not in a mattress. Right.
3: And he blanks out on that, doesn't mention it. Not one mention of just what, what it is at his capital, hence the term capitalism, a society in which one is allowed to accumulate wealth, in which he's against, by the way is actually, what is that doing for the prosperity of the nation? He doesn't even seem to get that himself. He says he's not a liberal do-gooder or making a moral argument against inequality. Um, against inequality because it's good for business, he says, and then invokes the Henry Ford argument, introducing a $5 day twice the prevailing wage. He converted the poor into a thriving middle class. Well, you know, when Henry Ford increased his wages to workers, he did so on his own without government insistence. However, even in so doing, he set wage rates far above the going rate at the time, which displaced most of the labor force from other industries into the auto industry, to the detriment of many other non-automotive industries and services who had to raise their wages, but could not really afford to do so and provide efficient services. What is originally never seen in these booming economies are those who were pushed out of the marketplace entirely. But eventually the price is paid and becomes visible. The ultimate result of all of this is the Detroit we see today, right? Because that one industry left and everybody had all their eggs in the one basket, generally speaking, of course. Now, Ontario has raised its minimum wage two or three times recently, and each raise in the forced wage rate resulted in the loss of approximately 20,000 jobs and up. And that was in the estimation of the very liberal government that brought it in. That was their own estimate. And he sees the economy as an ecosystem, raising wages, increases demand, which increases hiring, which increases demand. And I start thinking, oh my goodness, I'm listening to the to the re-enactment of another advancement of a perpetual motion machine. He wants the economy sort. to pick itself up by its own bootstraps. Pretty much nonsense. But what's not mentioned is that this cycle of perpetual motion he describes has a very important effect. If everyone has more money relative to the supply of goods and, and, and in demand and what's in demand, then prices will rise. And of everyone course. will be back right where they started relative to each other, only that they'll be paying higher prices for the same stuff they were getting with lower prices of yesteryear. And he says, this is why we need to replace the trickle-down theory with middle-out economics. He called it, referring to the middle class, I think. He rejects the idea that economies are linear, and instead embraces the 21st century idea that economies are complex, adaptive, and they tend away from equilibrium and toward inequality. That they're not efficient at all, but but they're not efficient at all, but effective if well-managed. Well, the idea of a complex adaptive economy goes at least all the way back to Adam Smith. The tendency away from equilibrium and equality, by the way, is a good thing, provided everyone else is free. And the idea of a middle-out economics is a bit oxymoronic. It's putting the cart before the horse. The middle has no class in a classless capitalist society, as we pointed out before on this show. This is muddled middle minimum thinking. He says capitalism does not work by effectively allocating existing resources. It works by effectively creating new solutions, etc. Well, the differential in capitalism is that it is about creating wealth, not distributing it or allocating existing resources from a fixed pie. That's socialism or any other ism. Capitalism is about baking a larger pie. The difference between a poor and rich society, says, is the degree to which that society has generated solutions in the form of products for its citizens. This again is putting the cart before the horse. Uh, that's the consequence of the degree to which a society is free or controlled on both the personal and economic front. The countries with the most freedom produce the greater number of products, and wealth is, and that wealth is in the form of capital. A lot of it. It's the capital that serves to generate the solutions that he talks about, not the labor and all the other force that he that he's talking to. Those are essential ingredients but not the thing that differentiates a capitalist society from any others. We'll listen to more from Nick now and continue our discussion on the other side of this.
0: June nineteenth, two 2013, Bloomberg published an article I wrote called The Capitalist Case for a $15 minimum wage. The good The good people at Forbes magazine, among my biggest admirers, called it Nick Hanauer's near insane proposal. And yet, just 350 days after that article was published, Seattle's Mayor Ed Murray signed into law an ordinance raising the minimum wage in Seattle to $15 an hour, more than double what the prevailing federal $7.25 rate is. I know that most people think that the $15 minimum wage is this insane risky economic experiment. We disagree. We believe that the $15 minimum wage in Seattle is actually the continuation of a logical economic policy that is allowing our city to kick your city's ass. (laughs) Because you see Washington state already has the highest minimum wage of any state in the nation. We pay all workers $9.32, which is almost 30 percent more than the federal minimum of $7.25, but crucially, 427 percent more than the federal tipped minimum of $2.13. If trickle-down thinkers were right, then Washington state should have massive unemployment. Seattle should be sliding into the ocean, and yet Seattle is the fastest growing big city in the country. Washington State is generating small business jobs at a higher rate than any other major state in the nation. The restaurant business in Seattle booming. Why? Because the fundamental law of capitalism is when workers have more money, businesses have more customers and need more workers. When restaurants pay restaurant workers enough so that even they can afford to eat in restaurants? That's not bad for the restaurant business. That's good for it, despite what some restaurateurs may tell you. Is it more complicated than I'm making out? Of course it is. There are a lot of dynamics at play. But can we please stop insisting that if low-wage workers earn a little bit more, unemployment will skyrocket and the economy will collapse? There is no evidence for it. The most insidious thing about trickle-down economics is not the claim that if the rich get richer, everyone is better off. It is the claim made by those who oppose any increase in the minimum wage that if the poor get richer, that will be bad for the economy. This is nonsense. So can we please dispense with this rhetoric that says that rich guys like me and my plutocrats friends made our country? We plutocrats know, even if we don't like to admit it in public, that if we had been born somewhere else, not here in the United States, we might very well be just some dude standing barefoot by the side of a dirt road selling fruit. It's not that they don't have good entrepreneurs in other places, even very, very poor places. It's just that that's all that those entrepreneurs, customers, can afford. So here's an idea for a new kind of economics, a new kind of politics that I call New Capitalism. Let's acknowledge that capitalism beats the alternatives, but also that the more people we include, both as entrepreneurs and as customers, the better it works. Let's by all means shrink the size of government, but not by slashing the poverty programs, but by ensuring that workers are paid enough so that they actually don't need those programs. Let's invest enough in the middle class to make our economy fairer and more inclusive, and by fairer, more truly competitive. And by more truly competitive, more able to generate the solutions to human problems that are the true drivers of growth and prosperity. Capitalism is the greatest social technology ever invented for creating prosperity in human societies if it is well-managed. But capitalism, because of the fundamental multiplicative dynamics of complex systems, tends towards inexorably inequality, concentration, and collapse. The work of democracies is is to maximize the inclusion of the many in order to create prosperity, not to enable the few to accumulate money. Government does create prosperity and growth by creating the conditions that allow both entrepreneurs and their customers to thrive. Balancing the power of capitalists like me and workers isn't bad for capitalism. It's essential to it. Programs like a reasonable minimum wage, affordable health care, paid sick leave, and the progressive taxation necessary necessary to pay for the important infrastructure necessary to the middle class like education, R&D, these are indispensable tools shrewd capitalists should embrace to drive growth because no one benefits from it like us.
2: Boy, talk about a confused argument. And You should mention first, Bob, that uh, he gave a similar talk, apparently, a couple of years before this one, and Ted the people in charge of the TED Talks refused to air it oh, because whole, they
3: were it was so filled with errors. There, there, there is a whole story behind that. Unfortunately, we don't have time to cover all that. But just for the record, there's no such thing as a capitalist case for a government-legislated minimum wage or, impo- or imposing anything by law. That's just not capitalism. And I fully agree that low-wage workers earning a little more is a good thing so long as it's actually earned and not legislated. That does do harm, and yes, there is evidence that it does harm that it does harm. But, you know, the idea that he thinks that his capital doesn't do any good, you know, that it serves no function, that his class of people, the plutocrats, have no role, I thought that was shocking. Particularly particularly in respect to the process of true capitalism, uh, as perhaps popularized by Adam Smith, the best, the invisible hand. Here we have Exhibit A, the invisible Hanauer, who apparently doesn't even note or appreciate the important role that he and others like him as risk-takers, that's what he does, help to increase the wealth of a nation. As a risk-taker with a high tolerance for risk, he's defined his probable real positive contribution to the capitalist process. And what is it that he's risking? loss. He might have been unlucky, right? Could have been the other way around. And that's also what true capitalism is about. I think the glaring and most essential words and concepts missing from his entire presentation on this whole thing from start to finish are, and he never said them once, prices, supply and demand, production, rights, and freedom, to mention just a few. But, you know, minimum wages are a form of price control. And prices is one of the words he never said, not even once. And he's talking about imposing a price increase. A free market in pricing is essential in the determination of the true value of a product or service. As Milton Friedman so often insisted, prices are an information source for the marketplace, automatically balancing supply and demand and thus regulating consumption and production in accordance with the reality of the situation. You mess with prices, then people don't get a, a true reality in front of them. They don't know what they're dealing with. And that's where the information gets wrong, out to the marketplace. And, of course, supply and demand. Now, if you're really going to broach the philosophy and ethics of capitalism, you have to relate to reality, reason, self, and consent as the respective metaphysical and and epistemological and all those philosophical foundations. Capitalism cannot be understood through intuition or luck. Um, you know, an equality is not the issue. When, whenever equality becomes a standard, whether moral or economic, then freedom goes out the door entirely. The equality of freedom refers only to the idea that all individuals, regardless of whether it's me, you, or Hanor, Hanauer, are equal before and under the law, and in no other way. He says he's not making a moral argument that economic inequality is wrong. But in fact, that's exactly what he did do, and is doing. Otherwise, there is no need to even mention inequality of an economic nature. Inequality is a non-issue and a non-concern if it only involves less than 1%. I've pointed out many times on past shows when this issue comes up that all essential things remaining equal, mainly individual rights, then economic inequality will only increase, particularly between those at the top of the income ladder and those at the bottom. Because in a free society, there's no limits on how much you can make. And yet he's proposing putting limits on how much people can make. That's called capital. That's the positive part of his whole process here that he's missing entirely. And the more capital you can create, that pool of money that's Not needed for everyday consumption and existence, the better everybody is. Because that's the capital that makes possible turning all those untried ideas of new entrepreneurs into untold fortunes or losses. You know, another essential process of capitalism is the profit and loss system. But in the world of material inequality, everything is relative. Inequality is not the issue, the absence of poverty is. If the so-called poorest in a country, even if they only share 6% of the wealth, are nevertheless able to have food, clothing, shelter, and a reasonable amount of leisure time, and everything from TVs to cars, it doesn't matter how great the gap of income between the richest and poorest is, it's irrelevant. Right now, thanks to all of the socialist policies of governments south of the border, both rich and poor alike, you know, they're all feeling that downward slide of the economic and, and general standard of living. Even though they'll be told that incomes today are at a higher level than ever before, this is largely in terms of grossly inflated dollars on the one hand and uncontrollable largess in government circles. These are the real causes of the growing inequality of the American people that should be feared. And it is why Hanauer specifically observed that, quote, a virtuous cycle that increases prosperity is precisely what is missing from today's economic recovery. Everyone seems to sense a great reckoning sometime around the corner, but no one's really quite sure what form it might take. Nick Anauer thinks it'll be pitchforks and angry mobs out to get the plutocrats. If he keeps talking like that, his prophecy may well come to pass as a self-fulfilling one, even to suggest what he's saying about plutocrats themselves, never mind the minimum wage. is like waving a red flag in front of any any of those angry mobs and giving them a reason to do so. So, in closing our show for another week, I leave you with this warning. Beware of socialists and plutocrats wearing capitalist masks. They are the architects of their own fears and consequences. And that's it for another show. So join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color,
0: color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything
1: will be all right. Well, how does it, lovey. Sturdy bit of construction, if I say so myself. Thurston, what on earth is that on your forehead? Oh, it looks like water. I wonder where it came from. Thurston, I know what it is. I used to see it on our gardener. It's perspiration. It is?
2: <laughs> what can I put it in? I've got to send it to Dad. He'd be fascinated.
1: <laughs> Dear, I do wish people wouldn't drop by without letting us know that they're coming.
2: It's only Gilligan,
1: lovey. Oh, yes, I know, but everything's in such a mess. The place looks like a hut. It is a rather crude cabano. Come in, come in, boy. I just thought I'd check on you folks. Do it again! Hey, that's a skipper. I better go see what he found out. Oh, dash it all. What is it, dear? I forgot to show him my perspiration. I wonder if I could do it again.